Hello, I'm Andrew from Ara Video in Wellington, New Zealand, and welcome to episode 11 of Back to the Disc Player, the Ara Video podcast. It's inspired by our Adopt-A-Movie scheme, which enables film lovers to purchase an exclusive lifelong affiliation with a title in our library or an acquisition that we may not have. It's where I get the privilege to talk to our customers about their personal connection to the film or films they've chosen to adopt and for us to find out a little bit about them too. Episode 11 is with Hugh MacDonald, whose six-decade career in the New Zealand film industry runs somewhat parallel to my podcast guest on the last episode, Graham Cowley. It's another feature-length episode that again has more biographical content than usual, and as both Graham and Hugh are elder statesmen of the industry, I'm attempting to capture and also pay tribute to their career legacies. Hugh's long filmmaking career is somewhat bookended by the two films he's best known for directing. First, the iconic promotional film This Is New Zealand, made for the Tokyo Expo of 1970, and then 47 years later for the popular feature documentary No Ordinary Sheila. Uh, We get to talk about these and everything in between, including his time at the National Film Unit, and of course Hugh's Adopt-A-Movie choice, which in some ways is about as far away from his own films as you could possibly get. Hugh is very candid and a bit of a character, so I hope you enjoy this conversation as I did with my guest, Hugh MacDonald. Well, hello, Hugh, and welcome to Upstairs at Ari Video uh, on the Back to the Disc Player podcast. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I invited you in an unconventional way compared to some of the other guests. Um, I received a phone call from you asking about a specific film. Um, You wondered whether we had it in the library. We won't reveal what it is just yet. But I said to you, we do not. But however, Hugh, you could adopt it for the library. And while you're at it, you can come and appear on our podcast. What do you? What say you? Uh, well, I've said, yes, what a good idea. And I'd be very happy to talk about that specific film, which we can name. It was um, from beyond, Tales from Beyond the Grave. Well, the good news is I actually finally got it in. Yeah, that's um, great. And I'm going to... Um, uh, we, we can talk about that a bit later, sure. Uh, because in my scribbled notes, I, I need to to talk to you a little bit about uh, your uh, your role in the film unit, the National Film Unit. And I just thought my opening question is a fairly basic one, but just something I don't know. Um, you're, you're mainly affiliated or well known about your affiliation with the film unit through the This Is New Zealand uh, feature. Uh, which we'll also talk about shortly. But I just wanted to know um, how long you were at the film unit um, and um, was, it, was it a job for life? Uh, it, no, as we, as, as we finally... As they used to call it in those they, days. They, if you had a job with the government, you had a job for life. That's right. Um, well, that proved to be patently false. Um, but I was there. I started at the beginning of 1962... And I was there for 22 years, and several times I was, I was on the verge of leaving to do other things. And at one stage, um, uh, Jeff Dixon, Jeff Dixon invited me to join him at um, what was the, uh, what was his production company? Oh called? yeah, Silver Screen. Silver Screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he'd just seen This Is New Zealand in its screenings before it went to Expo, and I thought. 
I don't think I want to be making just commercials. And poor old Jeff, he he was brilliant. You know, he could make a pastiche of something of any style, especially James Bond movies and things like that. And he produced these really, really uh, upscale um, and very dramatic and very visually um, full of visual impact and and sound and Mm. perfectly constructed and designed 30 seconds, 60 Mm. seconds. Super slick Yeah, but Mm. he was stuck in that... um, in mm. that particular rut, and mm. he had a—he was really thwarted because he wanted to make features, mm. and nobody could sort of, mm. you know, despite his great ability with commercials, and despite the fact that he never made a television commercial or a cinema commercial um, for under a million dollars, mm. and that was a lot mm. thirty years ago or more mm. now, um, and he was—he was a really talented guy, but he. Put himself into this one area, made plenty of money, and but was never satisfied. I'm mm. the opposite. Right, right. <laughs> I've so, made films that I'm very satisfied with, but never made any money. Sure. So you were, you were, um, uh, so 22 years at the film unit, the National Film Film Unit, yeah. as it was known originally, and it just yeah. was shortened to the film unit. Later. It was. It was just referred to within the trade. Okay. As, mostly as the film unit and anybody in Wellington, but outside yeah. of Wellington, it yeah. was always the national film unit. Sure. Yeah. So the idea of being lured away from the film unit uh, by Jeff Dixon to make commercials didn't appeal. No. Um, but uh, uh, but you um, were tempted along the way. So I, I my first recollection, my, my uh, encounter with uh, the film unit was when... They had moved to the Lower Hutt um, area next to the Avalon TV studios because I used to go to college in that area. So when I was a young teen, yeah, uh, I, I looked out at the, the buildings. Um, in fact, my, uh, my my girlfriend lived right opposite the Avalon TV studios and yeah. the film unit was, was a neighbour. Yes. So I was always sort of uh, envious <laughs> of the people that worked in these places. Yeah. Um, so, but you originally started in the early '60s at the film unit, and that was in Miramar. Is that right? Yeah, the old studio in Miramar, which had been built as a private uh, film production uh, studio called Filmcraft, spelled with a K, mm-hmm. and um, it existed well before sound. And it was um, there's a whole long story about this, and someday I'd like to make a documentary on it because um, it. It had a very checkered career, and finally, in the 1930s, the government approached the uh, guy called McKenzie, not Colin McKenzie, the fictitious Colin McKenzie. Oh right. Um, had uh, it was it had only one. The, the, no, the a representative of the government came and said, "Now look, uh, we think that we should." Um, buy the film your your studio from you but keep you working it because you know how to work it because mm. we we're, we're your only client mm. and uh, so that's what they happened and so mm-hmm. in the interim it became the government film unit the government film unit that's right mm. and then no government film studios mm-hmm. and uh, and then after that in 19 uh, 1939 it was John um the documentary filmmaker, uh, the British documentary filmmaker, 
Hmm. Um, neurons missing. Neurons oh, that's missing. okay. John, I can't I help you with this one, unfortunately. No, you'd know the name. He was. Hmm. Uh, he he was. Um, he worked for the GPO film unit, and produced really good documentaries like Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Directed no, he didn't direct that, but he worked on it. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, he came out and set up the uh, National Film Board in Canada, National Film Unit here, right? Uh, the Australian Commonwealth Film Unit, which was the Australian National Film Unit for a while, mm. and Film Nagara in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And um, out of all these organisations, only the Canadian Film Board is still thriving and right. doing all what it's been doing for the last 70-odd years very, very well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So I guess to ask a very fundamental question while all this was going on, what did you want to be when you grew up, Hugh? Uh, (laughs) I'm still still pondering that one, actually, Andrew. I'll let you know when I've got the (laughs) definitive answer. Okay, when you landed a job at the uh, the National Film Unit, um, was, you know, what led to that? happening um i when i was eight years old we were at lake tekapoke when it was being a hydroelectric uh it was being the single single unit single um generator huge generator at the at lake tekapoke was mm-hmm. being built and the lake was being converted to a holding lake for to the for the uh Hydropower, hydroelectric mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. and um, my father had been in in a sanatorium throughout the war, so he didn't get into see any active service and anything. He, he was in a in a sanatorium somewhere way up in the high country, mm-hmm. and he had tuberculosis, mm-hmm. and so that sort of disqualified him from everything. And he went back after he came out of hospital, and he went back to to Invercargill, which is where I was born, mm-hmm. and. Um, he was advised, um, get away from the damp climate here and go to the high country. And he did, and he got a job running the testing laboratory there. And he stayed there for as long as there, until the project was completed in 1953. And at that stage, he was posted to Christchurch. And my sister and I wept bitter tears. We didn't want to leave the Mackenzie country. Mm. It was just mm-hmm. such a place... Uh, Great place for kids to be in. Mm. It was so good, you know, mm-hmm. winter and summer. Sure. Mm. So filmmaking was far no, from film, your mind. At, I didn't at this know anything point. about it. I knew it was the existence mm-hmm. of films, mm. but um, the there was a film, a, a Ben Crosby film, called The Bells of St Mary's. It's a mm-hmm. melodrama and tearjerker, mm-hmm. um, and it was run at the Lake Tekapo Primary School for the local people. And I was absolutely captivated from the mm. first frame to the last mm-hmm. of this. At about what age? Oh, I'd been about, no, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and this was in Christchurch? Uh, no, no, we were living, still living at Tekapo then. Oh, right. Yeah, right, right. yeah. So they would have got a rental print down from Auckland. And that was it. And then at uh, Christmas we used to go to Invercargill to our grandparents there. And, uh, of course, the cinemas there were running Christmas fair and... It was there that I actually saw um, one of the Disney, one of the great Disney classics. I can't remember which one it was. Mm. It wasn't Snow White or mm-hmm. Pinocchio, mm-hmm. but it was one of those. And, yeah. and the, the an, animation just captured me sure. completely there. Sure. But uh, 
seeing something inspiring as a child and and making it a reality for something that you'd do in your life um you know did you did you fixate after you'd seen those films or oh, yeah. had it kind of um you know forgotten about it and then you rediscovered no no once we get to Christchurch, there was the luxury of a local cinema the rex which is um later uh which is all in one one story and it was it had an art deco um, exterior. It was a nice little cinema. It didn't have a, a balcony, so it was all in one level. And it was running, it was in Rickerton, and it was sort of a five minute walk away from our house. Mm. And we, my sister and I, used to go there most weekends, or else mm-hmm. ride our bikes into Cathedral Square to see mm. the big movies on in there. Sure. And um, so, so I can remember all the films that I saw at the Rex and at the other cinemas in Christchurch and what the overture music being played was mm. so I oh know I was really right mm. into it mm. and I started um, oh an uncle of mine an engineer lent me a, a really beautiful little 8mm camera Bell and Howell Sportster which I've still got which had speeds you could it, it had speeds of 8 frames per second 16 frames per second 24 32 and 64 frames right. and um our school eight, rowing eight, which later four members of whom were on the uh, one of the New Zealand rowing eights that won gold. I think it was at Mexico's Mexico, but I'm city, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Anyway, um, what they um, wanted to analyse their style. They used to rehearse. They used to practice in Kerr's Reach, which is a straight piece of water in the Avon, hmm. and um, I filmed them at 64 frames a second. Mm-hmm. And of course, the slow motion is perfect. They're all all gathered round the right. screen, right cool. beside, and all analysing the style. So, so this was a camera you'd borrowed from your uncle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which he gave to me specifically for that. Um, yeah. for that purpose. Yeah. Well, just making films, and I made little mm. dramas and little comedies, and mm-hmm. even experimented with single frame animation mm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what happened in between then, and and because you started at the film unit. In 1962, yeah. So that obviously was in Wellington. So where was the? Well, when did the move happen, or what instigated that? Well, uh, what happened was I was making all these eight millimeter films, and I wanted to buy. I, you know, they, they, I'd send them away, and they'd, they'd go to Kodak or another laborat- uh, other laboratories for Ferrania colour, which is terrible stuff, or the black and white stuff goes somewhere else. But they ca- all came back in their little grey spools, 50 feet. Um, that would be double, uh, double 16, double 16 with the eight millimetre, twice the number of sprocket holes. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you know, you'd you'd, the, you'd roll the film through the camera and then take the bottom spool, turn it over the other way, and the second side of the film would be exposed. And right. then in the laboratory, they'd splice, they'd split it up the middle and right. splice it in the wow. centre. Okay. And um, I had. To see these things, I didn't know anybody who had a projector, but there was a, a little place across town run by some obsessed idiot, rather like my house, full of motion picture equipment to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, he had um, projectors of all kinds, and I used to hire one from him and cycle back and use it and then take it back again. Yeah. And... Um, I, I really wanted to buy I really desperately wanted to buy a projector and um, my the, my parents said no well you know no, we, it's, they're very expensive but that wasn't the point they they actually 
said that um, my father had a cousin who was working in research for Philips Electrical Industries, and at that stage they were trying to develop a so-called cold lamp. Mm-hmm. And so they fobbed my, my, me off by saying, these, these, these hot lamp projectors will be redundant in a few years. Mm. Well, it happened. You mm-hmm. look at the, le- le- the LEDs now, mm. you know, they're virtually cold lamps, mm, but sure. I mean, I'm glad I didn't wait for 50 years yeah. until that sure. came around. So an uncle of mine from Stewart Island, Tui MacDonald, Stuart mm-hmm. Tui's real name, mm-hmm. said to me in his... You, in his usual way, he said, well, if your parents won't let you buy a projector, why don't you build one? So I did. Right, right. And I built a, a, built a projector. millimeter okay. projector, yeah, yeah, out of bits of brass and Meccano and things. Right. I mean, I could probably build a screen, you know, by out of a bed sheet. Yeah. That, yeah. That's probably, that sounds pretty, well, do you was not just think that was a ridiculous idea? No, well, it, the 9.5 has got the sprocket hole right down the centre. You know mm. that. You know. Um, it's, in, it's a fairly wide um, frame line, and it's, mm. it's a really good image, nearly as big as 16 millimetre. Mm-hmm. And the picture of side to side is right, there's, um, right to, from film edge to film edge. Mm. And um, I built a, a, a little... I had a small gramophone... Um, which was electric and uh, with a small turntable, and it drove a series of, of uh, Meccano gears onto a worm gear which had the shutter, and mm. the it, I made a, a claw out of the bottom piece of a brass protractor, and I cut made it with uh, two claws at the end, and I put, cut a slot in the centre of it and put the, uh, an axle through it, so it was on mm-hmm. a cam, and then it was going like this and pulling the film down, but if it missed the film, yeah. if it missed the holes, it made its own holes, of course. Well, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, good in principle, but just getting it, the, it to work, you know, so it, that it, yeah. it was smooth, it so worked, it sounds yeah. like a nightmare. Did no, it actually well, work? It worked. Oh, yeah, it yeah. worked. I mean, I didn't use it very very much because I got the right. one I based it on. I bought that from a friend who... Uh, it was a, Kota, uh, it was a mm. Pathoscope Ace, which was a very small machine, but this had an enormous single-sewing machine electric motor on it. Right. So and was I'd, there any number eight wire attached? Uh, well, that was the number eight wire sort of thing that <laughs> I did. But no, I, no, wow. no not okay. really. All right, so that, that, that would look good on the CV then. What was your first job? Uh, no, was, our first job was editing pictorial parade items, which I took to with uh, great, great enjoyment. And on this the is in Christchurch? No, Wellington. And Wellington. Yeah, as soon as yeah. I joined the film, you know. Right. So this is a splice of this is a movie all of this is film and this is how you do that. Yeah. And sort of lift you to your own devices. Yeah. So did you apply for the job in oh, Wellington? Uh, yeah, no, I applied for it. Yeah, no, no, no. My father thought, uh, well, both my parents thought, oh, he wants to make films, he wants to make films. We can go and thought, well, there's only one place, and that's the National Film Unit. Mm. And, you know, you, everybody, the Film Unit films were, were being screened in the first half of the movies. And, right. And they were being well received in those days. They mm-hmm. weren't always later on, but, you know. Yeah, so your parents moved to Wellington? No, no, they didn't move to Wellington. No, okay. no anyway, the, no, what happened was um, I wrote to the National Film Unit and they sent me to Frank... Uh, oh, God, what's his name? Anyway, there was a guy who was um, a South Island representative 
of the National Film Unit, and he was a cameraman and director and editor. He did everything himself. And I went to see him, and we talked, and, and he recommended me. And that stage, I was only 15, mm. or 14, I think. And mm. they, they said, where can you come up? Mm. And, and my parents said, well, you've got to finish high school. Right. And I, I didn't shine at high school. I, shot, I was fine in English and history, top in English and history, and bottom maths and physics and, and used to be the class clown doing all kinds of things that got me caned on a regular basis, mm. um, but entertained the whole class. Mm. Um, I, I just had to wait until I got through and then I went, to, came and shot up to Wellington as soon as I could, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. happened to be January 1962 and I just mm-hmm. turned 18. Sure. So that must have been pretty exciting. New, new, yeah, well, new town uh, and uh, and a and a pretty cool new job uh, yeah, that that, it, uh, that that people like me would have killed for. If yeah, I was well, your it, contemporary. You know, I'm, I feel I for a long time we were we were all of us who started at the same time were enjoying what we're doing, but we we didn't hold much respect for Jeffrey Scott, the the manager, because. As far as we could tell, he was taking the credit for all our creative effort. Mm. And later we found out what he was really doing. Mm-hmm. And that was, he was a brilliant administrator and manager. And every time the government changed and a new administration came in, the first thing they'd want to do would be to get rid of the National Film Unit because they saw it as being mm. a spokes, um, a mouthpiece for the existed, the last administration. Okay. And Jeff would actually had it was a great communicator, mm. and he would end up making friends. It didn't matter what their political colour was; mm. they all respected him. So, mm-hmm. when it came to this is New Zealand, and he told me I was going to do the job, mm. um, it was the whole thing happened was that it was left entirely to Jeff and to his staff to make the film. Nobody interfered. There were no committees saying we must have this and we must have that. Mm. And we were left entirely on our own. Mm. And nobody saw it, not mm. even any test material, until the whole thing was finalised. Mm, sure. Well, you've nothing... nothing. The people whom I interviewed for That Was New Zealand had, had a lot of filmmakers, uh, young filmmakers, they'd say you'd never be able to do that now. Mm. Mm, sure. So, uh, uh, Jeffrey Scott it was his brainchild, the, the This Is New Zealand film, mm. and the idea of it being um, shot and projected on three screens simultaneously as a yeah. kind of form of cinemascope. Um, so, a very ambitious and potentially very expensive project for, for the film unit. So, yeah. It, um, why do you think that you got offered the job to direct it? And, and uh, well, uh, without blowing my own trumpet, that was in in 1967. I'd taken over a film that Linton Diggle, who's a cameraman director, had been making on Auckland. He was the other guy that was um, the the one in Christchurch. Boot knows what was his real name? Frank Chilton. Frank Chilton. Mm-hmm. And Linton Diggle was a cameraman director, and he was making a film about Auckland. And he he edited it together, and he brought it down to show to the film unit um, administrators, i.e. Jeff and and the producer, and the associate producer. And um, they didn't like it at all, and they called me and they said, "Look, will you look at this and tell us what you think should happen?" So I looked at them and I said. 
take it, there's some really good stuff in there. Take out all the good footage and start again. And they said, right, you've got the job. Right. And here I, and me, you know, I was, mm. uh, I was about 22. And mm. um, I had to go to Auckland and take over from a, a very, um, very accomplished cameraman, but not so much an editor. And a, and a guy who, you know, knew his own abilities and mm. sort of more or less say, well, I'm, you know, I'm now the director. But fortunately, Linton and I got on perfectly fine. So mm. that film won three major international awards, mm. including a first prize at Venice. Yeah. And um, these things started sort of... Uh, at this stage... So was that your first directing job, no, that one that you took over from? No, I, was, I directed several shorter right. pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. My guest on the last episode of the podcast was Graham Cowley, and and he was he he asserted that the National Film Unit uh, was was like a branch arm of the Ministry of Tourism. Uh, well, <laughs> um, it, and, well, that's it, right. He said it kindly, um, yeah. and in fact, I'm paraphrasing. But it, I, I, the point I'm making is that it um, is that really what the film unit's main um, mandate was to, uh, to to film the the lakes and mountains of New Zealand as... No, it wasn't, but it evolved into that. And originally, when it was formed in 1939, there was only one production. It was a weekly review, which you will know about, and they did this with great expertise, and with those weekly reviews where people would go to the cinemas to see the weekly reviews, not the features, yeah. because there were cameramen shooting on the war front, there were cameramen shooting and directors shooting in, well, in New Zealand. Yeah. So it, it, there are quirky little stories, and there was the hard sure. wharf stuff in the, yeah, in yeah. the trenches and everything. Yeah, yeah. So would, would that mean that as... Uh, the cinema declined in the in the face of television, the advent of television, you know, which we, I guess, got in New Zealand in the late fifties. Was it? Um, um, yeah. Was there a a change of purpose for the film unit in that you went from newsreels that were shown traditionally as uh, supporting feature films to uh, uh, you know to the to the t- tourist type films, isn't it? No, I think there was. It was more uh, a change in, in the fact that originally the film unit used to be under the prime minister's department, and then it went like became under the tourism department of tourism and publicity. Mm, right, and I see. That's okay. why. It okay, so like it, was, that, it yeah. actually was a branch arm. <laughs> uh, well, it was. Yeah, yeah and it yeah. was also it was also there to do productions for any government department that wanted yeah. them you know yeah yeah so that this is new zealand experience uh that was uh you must have felt like that was a, a huge responsibility to take that on um given that it was unprecedented technology that you were about <coughs> to employ not entirely not mm-hmm. entirely andrew in fact um jeff scott had gone to expo 67 right in montreal this is it right at the beginning of no of, of, of um that was new zealand yeah and um looked at we knew at that stage that or he knew that new zealand was going to participate in the next expo which was going to be in japan in 1970 yes. and so mac ashley who was in charge who was the technical director he went over on his own money and he looked at everything there and realized well you know we we can't do things with 70 millimeter but there were several three screen or multi-screen um productions which 
he realised we could do from existing materials. And as you know, this in New Zealand doesn't have many of those Cinerama type three screen shots. There are probably only about 12 in the whole film, but mm -hmm. um, that was the basis of it. And, um, and that, those three cameras were actually had cables, mechanical cables to mm. link them and keep them in sync. But the rest of it was all done standard, and we worked it all out later during editing, how right. what the juxtaposition of shots. Although a lot mm. of the, a lot of the shots were actually planned in well in mm. advance. Mm -hmm. There was uh, just looking at the documentary that was New Zealand, which is on the DVD yeah. um, of This Is New Zealand, um, which is you know a twenty minutes short. Um, Twenty minutes short, the, the, and, the, the and, the, and the making of is three times that long. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's um, the longest ever making of film, <laughs> about the shortest ever subject. <laughs> so, on the documentary that was New Zealand about the making of it, um, there was uh, some disgruntlement with how the feature was going, how the the film was going halfway through its production. That's right. Where there was a lot of worry and scepticism about this quite expensive production and the fact that it, uh, nobody could make uh, head nor tail of it, I think somebody said. That was so were you kind of in the thick of it at, at, at one point thinking, what, you know, do we know what we're doing? Yeah, that's we did. We, Dave Jordan and I were working together. He editing, he would edit. I would edit through the... Um, through the day until about uh, mid-afternoon and he'd take over and he'd carry on right through till 11 at night and then in the morning we'd get together and look at what I'd done look at what he'd done um, and um, it was, there were some tricky ideas that we'd written down we didn't know how to actually illustrate them properly and make them work they were just mm. they were disparate they were completely unrelated and we quickly discovered that you had to have all three images relating together either by um, theme, content, um, movement in towards the centre screen or out from the screens, across the screens, and mm. or the composite mm. uh, images, mm -hmm. because otherwise it wouldn't work. Yeah. But we quickly got into the swing of it. It was just that Ron Bowie, who was the alleged producer of it, it was Arthur put it very aptly... Um, <laughs> threw his apron over his head and went and sulked in a corner. <laughs> right, right, sure. Um, the, I mean, just looking at the film again, which I hadn't seen for quite a while, not since it was re-released in 2013 and, and, and remastered, uh, yeah. and it, it does look incredible. Um, and uh, but apart from the, the look of it, um, you know, it's, it is a really elegant piece of work, a, a really elegant piece of editing. So I think that's... Um, uh, and I think that over the 20 minutes, the, uh, the, the use of the three screens, it never kind of um, outstays its welcome. There's always a new trick yeah, that you're right. coming up with. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so, um, so 20 minutes feels perfect yeah. because, you know, if you go longer than that, you start to... Um, if it went uh, longer than that, it would start to drag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so it really is really efficient, not only kind of... Um, you know, in uh, in its focus on all aspects of New Zealand life, you know, in a in a generalistic way, um, but also those, um, those those clever techniques, which I can't imagine doing without the assistance of digital technology. <laughs> yeah, well, there you are. And they, those split screen shots and shots where images move. There's a deer in the forest, 
and the camera is on a long lens and the and it looks at the camera and then it starts trotting and we pan the shot right through the three screens and when the end of the pan it stops so does the movement mm. and that all that kind of stuff there was a whole sequence of things we spent a week working it out and then you've got all these images in in the early part of the film all of these nature and bird images and we had to work out what where it was going to be on each frame mm. whether it's going to be movement of the frame within the frame and what the shape of the frame would be you know like a key is sitting in the snow so you don't use the whole frame you just use yep. a sort of a portrait sure and that took us a week and then it took the guys in the obstacles department a mm. week to translate Mm. Um, our instructions because they they always have to get, go from footage numbers start in this frame move at the frame to so and so and there was pages of instructions nowadays and then then they did it all sent it to Humphreys Laboratory six weeks wait for the in the UK yeah because they were the only uh, laboratory that could do color processing yes yeah, yeah. Um, there was nothing in New Zealand we had the film unit. Yeah. The film unit had uh, black and white processing and uh, Colour Cat didn't come along until 1973. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was being interviewed a couple of years ago by a young lady and um, it was in a really noisy environment, oh, yeah, the Maranui Cafe. And um, I said, I told her about this, I said, you know, we had to send our footage, our colour footage, to London to be processed. And because uh, we only had black and white processing at the film unit, and she wrote in her article, they sh- the f- the black and white film was sent to London to be coloured. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. I don't like giving interviews. So You've got to. Now this is an awkward segue um, from 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 coloured, but I, I had to uh, one other observation about seeing the film today was uh, that there aren't really many brown faces in the film. That, 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 was, that was a criticism, but mm. in fact, uh, my old friend Jim Moriarty looked at it on the iMac for mm. the first time. He'd never seen it before, mm. and that opening sequence, which is, uh, you know, um, he, he, was, he said, did you guys make this for this version? I said, no, it was always intended to open with a, a homage to the original inhabitants mm. and that's mm. what we did and he said well mm. you got it right perfectly mm. and mm. then mm. I said well look you know Jim um, people are complaining that there are not many brown faces and he said oh no I could see brown faces there and yeah. probably the nut, because it was all canted stuff yeah sure um, yeah. you know yeah, we yeah. picked up we picked up there are definitely people who are Maori. There are definitely people who. Oh, are for sure. No, that, no, there are. But that it's would just, have been would... representative of the number in the population then. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So yeah. yeah, so we it, people did criticise it in the same way as they did about why did we use a Finnish composer and not use right. a New Zealand. Model. I was about to mention that. Well, the answer well, is simple. on the soundtrack. Yeah, but the the answer yeah. is simple because, um, uh, you know. Uh, Oh, heck, um, I mean, it's inc- it's really the, effective. I mean, yeah, the, the, it was. Yeah, well, yeah. the 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 reason we didn't use any uh, local stuff, but who was the the composer of the time? He still is. Uh, um, Lilburn. Lilburn. Douglas Lilburn. Mm-hmm. Um, Lilburn's music is nice, but it didn't have the weight and gravity and the the majesty we wanted. Mm-hmm. And then one day, Dave Jordan picked up a forty five. Um, by a well-known pop group at the time, a mm-hmm. version of the Intermezzo from the Karelia Suite. Mm-hmm. And Arthur walked through, we were playing this in the sound department, and I was thinking, yeah, it's good, but it's 
it doesn't really work very mm. well. It's a nice sort of melody and a nice rhythm. And Arthur said, um, "What are you usually thinking of doing that? Using this for?" And we said, "Well, for the opening and closing sequence of um, mm. largely um, aerial shots of yeah. New Zealand." And yeah, um, yeah it's grand. Yeah, so, that's right. And yeah. Arthur said, "Well, yeah." And Arthur yeah. said, "Well, why don't you use the original?" And I said, and we said, "Well." We can get it. Well, he was a music critic, and he had. He said, "Well, I've got six versions of it." Right. So we went up there, Kit Rollings, me, um, yeah. Arthur, and somebody else, and um, we went through all six. Mm. And the only one that was exactly right was the one by Sir John Barbaroli and the Halle Orchestra, and it had the right majesty mm. and weight. And sure, every time I hear that. Um, the Karelia Suite, and I've heard the NZSO play it with different conductors three times. Mm. They go through the uh, the first passage, and then they get onto the intermezzo, and they get carried away, and they take it off at a gallop. Mm-hmm. So going up, and it's the whole rhythm is completely mm-hmm. not. It wouldn't have worked. Sure, sure. No. Um, it's an eclectic soundtrack, though, isn't it? There's not it it's is, not just yeah. Sibelius. There's all sorts no, of things all in sorts there, and but it all is all international music. No, there, no, there, heck there were, no. There were, there, were some no, seven, there were four pieces mm-hmm. that um, uh, that Blurter did for us. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, because there was that kind of yeah, jazz. Yeah. Well, that's uh, psychedelic that's, jazz. Uh, yeah. Well, groove. that's that's, that's yeah. Bruno. Oh and, right. Yeah. That's, that's Bruno really effective. And Jeff Murphy. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, good. And John Charles. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, they, they. No, it was so good. I wondered if it was all international because I knew that. No, there were four pieces by that, and Jeff talks about it. Yeah. In the in the making of, yeah. and he talks about where you're arguing in pubs and all that, but yeah, yeah that's and we'd we'd shown them the sequence and then we recorded mm. it and and adjusted the cut to fit it perfectly and their music mm. worked perfectly. There's also the Hampton County Bluegrass Band. Yeah, the music is really beautifully integrated, as I say, just as a as a really elegant piece of work. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, well done. Okay, well done. Yeah. Now, um, so we can go back to the 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 uh, the. The reason, um, the hook um, <laughs> that brings you onto the podcast, which is your adopt-a-movie choice. So, indeed, you rang me and asked for um, a film called From Beyond the Grave from 1974, which we didn't have. Um, yeah. But I, uh, you know, um, it vaguely rang a bell, and sure enough, it was um, uh, a film uh, made by Amicus Film Productions That's right. um, yeah, in 1974. Like right. Okay. Um, um, and we do. We did have a. We have quite a few other Amicus uh, horror films um, who are contemporaneous to Hammer Horror That's and often right. confused very, with them. Yeah, well, very similar idiom. You know, in, they, indeed. They're not. They don't take themselves seriously. No. So I just. I just got a little bit of. A little bit of research and interesting facts about Amicus. Um, run by two expatriate Americans in, in yeah. England. Uh, one called Milton Subotsky. You can't get a more American Jewish name than that. No, you can't. Now, uh, interesting to see that he was a, a producer and writer of television, but he, um, he also wrote nine songs on the musical Rock, 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 which we do have in the Arrow Video Library. Oh, yeah. Before he emigrated... And um, and was naturalised as a as an Englishman in the sixties. Um, and Amicus were were well known for their horror anthologies, of which From Beyond the Grave is one. Inspired by the nineteen forty five film Dead of Night. Do you know Dead of Night? No, I don't. Yeah, it's a fabulous 
Ealing film. Oh, it's an that, Ealing it's, film. It, yeah, it? that oh, is wow. that is okay. that is a horror film, but it does have one comic, yeah. uh, supernatural um, segment in it. But it is the the mother of all um, omnibus films, uh, yeah. and um, interesting that it worked so well that it you know became a very English thing to do was to have these. Omnibus portmanteau yeah, well, it's, uh, it's anthologies. Three, whatever three, you want to call three them. stories in them revolving around a central theme. Indeed, as, yeah, as in this one, temptations. Indeed. So yeah. tell me about why why you were after that film, uh, why you rang and asked uh, if we had um, it. Uh, well, what, in nineteen seventy three, I was get, got an arts council grant to go overseas for a year or something, um, and just get a feel of the international industry. I had it all set up to go to Czechoslovakia because we loved the Czech films but we got to London and was told I couldn't go there because I was a journalist and I said I'm not, I'm a filmmaker and he said it's, oh. it's the same thing. You see. Why would you not be able to go there because you're a journalist? Because I was a filmmaker yeah, I was a journalist, I didn't want the you know, because I cleared it with the legation, there was a Czech legation in Wellington, there was a guy here called Miroslav Pravka mm-hmm. and he set it up and he said, Yeah, but the people in the in um, Prague would love to welcome you and your wife and children with a very small event. Uh, come and see us and we'll show us how the studio and it was all there, and it would have been really great because there's, I, I really still love those films, and some mm-hmm. of them, one of them, I've got the only print in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, that's... Quickly uh, tell us what that one is. Um, it's, it's, it, it was... From the Czech New local Wave. release, was, it was called That Cat. Right. The actual Czech title is When the Cat Comes. Right. It's okay. about a magical cat. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy satire comedy. It's a social satire, political satire, and it's got. Uh, it's all in subtitles, um, but uh, the Czech pe- speaking people whom I know, and one of them is a woman called he- uh, Helena Fielinger, who was produced animation. Who worked in animation in Prague, and she and her husband Paul, who was a brilliant animator. Um, and he still is. He's he's a terrible bastard though, and a terrible drunk. Um, he um, they made they escaped from Prague. They mm-hmm. got across Europe. They got across to um, to New York. They immigrated there, and they set over to went over to New Jersey, and they set up a small animation studio. And then they did all the animation animated inserts for Sesame Street, mm-hmm. and working with. Um, Jim Henson sure. and various other people. Mm-hmm. And then... Sorry, where were they doing that from? Um, New Jersey. Right, okay. Yeah. I don't so, know where they, what city they were in. Right. So the, these, these were Czech people working yeah, in she, America? She, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So how did we bounce from, from England? You're going to England uh, you're well, uh, uh, to, to, to Czech? I'm well, sorry. I was, we were going to... I bought a, a, a combi with left-hand drive and we, we shot out... To, no, that's right, I'll finish the story in the Czech legation in, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, this guy was so pleased with himself. He said, he said, uh, no, you can't go. And I said, well, I need to. And I said, why not? I said, I set it all up in Wellington with Miroslav Pravda. And he said, Miroslav Pravda? What would he know? You know, <laughs> and, and he was so bloody smug. And he said, your wife? She can go. 
And I said, yeah, I know, she's a nurse. Yes, but you can't. And he was yeah. so pleased with himself, the bastard. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so just to, for me to clarify, this is you trying to get out of England to go to Czechoslovakia or... No, no, just, no, just, no, no, just, no, 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 no. It was part of my plan was to go to England, um, go to Pinewood, Shepparton. Is this you just getting out of New Zealand? No, just going to look at international trends, and right. which I did. And uh, I ended up sitting on the sets all over the bloody place. Peter Cushing was one of the most entertaining people um, in his role as the in the Temptations, in the as the antique dealer. Mm-hmm. He he. Um, he was he was brilliant. Well, he he was very good. He was a Shakespearean actor as well as being everything else. Mm. And um, I had lots of interesting philosophical discussions with him. And he'd come in the morning and in the show business way, wave his hand at me. Hello, my lovely. I'll see you in a minute. And and he could tell you all these bloody stories. And he was really great. And he was also very pleased because, you know, the monotony of filmmaking when you're not required. And he just, his wife had just died, so Mm. he was feeling a bit sad. Mm. Um, But I just really enjoyed... um, How did you get on the set of From Beyond the Grave, though? Uh, Well, I went to... The first place I went to was... um, Pinewood Studios, and Jeff Jeff Scott set that up with the manager of Pinewood, right? And they decided to put me on a carry-on movie that was being shot at the time, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, you know wasn't an art movie. But there, yeah. I go, you know, talk to people like Sid James and uh, right, and I met Alan Hume, who was the cameraman. Yeah, and he was re- uh, you know because I was so interested in, in the gear they were using. He thought that I was the cameraman, but I said, no, I'm not really on director. Right. But um, yeah. no, anyway, I well, kept in contact with Alan, and the next film he was doing was, he went straight on to um, Shepparton, where they were shooting Tales from Beyond the Grave. Right. And so Alan's work is reviewed there. Um, very, um, so he was the cinematographer. He was the cinematographer. Yeah. He ended yeah. up shooting several James Bond movies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and also uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So I recently saw From Beyond the Grave, uh, watched it, I was looking forward to it and enjoyed it. And yeah. um, as you say, it's, uh, you know, the classic conceit of uh, a mysterious antique store run by a, an old man played by Peter Cushing. Um, and f- the stories that emanate from that through various antiques that are bought by various uh, A-list British actors. Yeah, yeah. That's um, right. uh, and um, but what struck me um, was the level of sophistication or professionalism that that comes out of the production. So even though it's mm. kind of quote unquote B grade, yeah, there yeah. is a real. Um, you get the feeling it's a uh, it's just a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Uh, you have these A-list casts. Mm. You have uh, beautiful production design. Cinematography yep. and music, you yep. know, it's yep. just beautifully orchestrated. It Even is. if the the stories themselves can be a bit hoary, you know, they can yep. be yep. Uh, yep. Uh, have dated a little bit, but you can still enjoy them uh, for the, you know, as a um, as a, just just yeah. as a, a, the craft artifact of, of the time yeah. and the craft of film. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. Um, so. Um, was that, you know, so you just were on the two films in England, or was that... Oh, no, I, I spent quite a bit of time with the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, once on the Horizon Documentary Unit, and boy, those guys worked, worked at a glacial pace, and they'd stop for um, 10, 10, 
<laughs> Ten pints of beer at lunchtime congratulating themselves on getting one shot. Right, right, right. We'd, we'd never have got away with it here. But they did produce really great stuff. And then mm. I spent some time at Ealing mm-hmm. uh, where they were sh- where um, Dennis Main Wilson, who produced all the early goon shows, uh, the radio series, he was directing Marty Feldman. Marty had his own show. And... Um, Marty was hilarious, but they went. T- I was there for an hour and a half because I didn't get there till about ten o'clock. Um, in the underground, coming from out of town, where the hell was I? I can't remember. Finchley, East Finchley, and um, uh, the uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. They took one shot over and over, and Marty got funnier and funnier. But the Dennis was never happy with it, and then he said, "Righto, I'm going to take Marty for a beer." And when when they came back, I went over and started talking to him and when you get close you don't know which eye to look at seriously for sure now one of the uh, among the um the cast of from beyond the grave uh, one notable person i wanted to mention was uh the fellow yes, new know. zealander nairi dawn porter yeah. did you have much to say to her or much in common no with no her? she she treated me as though i was uh, something that shouldn't be observed at all, recognised or or st- stepped on, and you, you, you uh, were just absolutely yeah. cut me. To, you know, all right. these all these other experienced people were welcoming me, and right. this one news, one Kiwi somehow resented my being on the set. <laughs> that somehow doesn't surprise me. No, um, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, so was there anybody else on set that you that stood out for you? Donald Pleasance was in there and uh, Diana Dawes. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, um, just a great cast. Margaret Layton gives an amazing yeah, performance. That's right, that's right. So because there's four or five stories, I mean, there's four yeah. stories and then the overarching antique uh, story. Yeah. Were you there kind of I was there for the whole, for the whole thing yeah, so you're yeah. getting all of these different yeah, it was all uh, interiors. So that must have been really exciting to it was, yeah, to, it was, to yeah. have uh, a different set up every day you know that yeah, would be quite different. Yeah. Yeah. The the interesting thing too about the shepherded location was right inside the main gates was a house and in this house was the New Zealand film director who'd spent many several years at the film unit John Forlong. Michael Forlong, sorry. Michael Forlong and um who, who'd who'd done films like um, a film, a road safety film called uh, um, The Elysian Bus, mm-hmm. which is all about three people waiting at a bus stop in a fog, and they're all dead, and they all get oh, yeah. to tell their own stories, oh, yeah. and that's that sort of stuff. They mm. f- people like Forlong tried to experiment with drama, and they did it to. Very good success to to some degree or another, mm. but then Forlong, <laughs> Forlong had two daughters and, uh, and and a wife at the time, and he took off with his continuity woman, and um, really wasn't particularly popular with his family for the rest of his life. But mm. I went and saw him because he was making documentaries over there. Mm. He also came back here and made a film for the Children's Film Foundation that starred a very young Tim Morrison. It was called Rungy's Catch. Oh, yeah. And you you know that I know it, yeah. I I know of it, yeah. Yeah. It's not a a great movie. Mm. Yeah, it's a a mini-feature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, now there's a lot more ground to cover, so um, we'll just 
I just want to know before we talk about no ordinary Sheila. Um, so, so the mid seventies where you were in England, you were there for a few years. No, I was or, there for nineteen seventy three for nine months. Nine yeah, months. because then yeah. after yeah we we yeah. went we went camping through Europe and and then we got back and went yeah. to Canada yeah. and um, uh, Toronto. And we arrived in Canada. The family was established, set up in the the McFarlands home, and I was at CBC um, for a week. That's all. Then actually, I picked up some work um, editing, which was really odd. But, mm-hmm. but the ref- a referral from Jerry Gerald Thomas, who directed the was the uh, Carry On director. Oh, yeah. And I, so I got some work there. But then I went to the National Film Board, and I stayed there throughout the week came back for the weekends and I stayed at Rupert Glover's Rupert was then he used to be at the film unit you know he's Dennis Glover's son mm-hmm. and Rupert would uh, was was had been working at the film board for some years and I got the and now there's another long story featuring <laughs> Dudley Moore right. who became a, a friend of mine for 30 years but that's that's a well, long story so I'll do that well that's time. that's an interesting uh, affiliation um um, but I, I, I guess I um, just going back to your, your stint at the National Film Unit in general. It was a twenty-two year stint, and I and and, and it wasn't a, uh, a a job for life. So why did you eventually leave the film unit in, in the well, early eighties? The it's more why didn't I leave earlier? Because every time I was on the verge of thinking I want to get out and I want to be independent. They gave me another job that was really interesting to okay. do. Yeah. So, so yeah. as long as my interest was peaked, then I would stay. And, and uh, why were you itching to get out, though? Was the... um, I don't know. I think just because I thought, well, you know, it, it might try my hand at being an independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that took until 1985 before it was. It was at the end of '85 that I actually resigned. Yeah. 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 And so, so you were freelancing, or what, yes. what happened then? So, well, there was um, the first year there was nothing happening, so I became a used film salesman, <laughs> and for a year, and that kept me going. Mm. And then I got a job with um, I knew Neville Barton, who was the spokesman for the head of public affairs for the Dairy Board. And I'd known him for years, and we travelled together, and um, in various places I met up. He worked at uh, as a he was a journalist working for the tourism department, and we sort of met up in places like Queenstown, Centre of Otago, and other places, and mm. various exploits there, which I won't mm-hmm. go into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, were you making films in the in the late eighties? Oh yes, no. Yeah, but yeah, what yeah. happened in the late eighties before I left was. Um, we got an animation unit established and that was because Bob Stenhouse came to join and Martin Townsend who was the nominal head of the design department where mostly they were doing was sort of were titles fairly simple stuff mm. but there was Larry Nelson was um, uh, uh, he worked there and he'd always wanted to do animation he was a very good animator, but he was slow as a wet week. Bob was even slower, but that was mm. Bob was a perfectionist. But I became producer for a whole mm-hmm. series of short animated films, and one was The Frog, the Dog, and the oh, Devil. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. That was mm-hmm. nominated for an Oscar. Mm. And Bob and John Lasseter 
were both nominated for Oscars for The Frog, The Dog and The Devil, which I produced, and John Lasseter had Luxo Jr. That's mm -hmm. on the Pixar um, mm. DVD with all the short uh, wow. films. Wow, okay. Yeah, John Lasseter, the director of Toy Story. Yes. And mm. um, there was another... Was a, John and, um, and Bob were seated together, and they both thought the other was going to get the Oscar, but it was a third party mm. with a, a, a very... A little film called um, A Greek Tragedy, which is all sort of standard, more mm. like Can um, Canadian Film Board mm. animation, mm. And very sketchy, very quirky. But it, mm. I didn't think that that it was as funny or as clever as either Luxo Junior or The Frog, the Dog. Mm. Mm. But the mm. after the getting the um, Oscar nomination, it got um, mm -hmm. several other major international mm -hmm. prizes. So was that was that interesting going to the Oscars? No, I didn't go to the you Oscars. Didn't go? Bob did. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right, right, right. <laughs> Although oh, Variety okay. put my name on the front page of, uh, on its front page, and not Bob's. And I've got, um, I've got a framed copy of the um, nomination for the Oscar, and they've yeah. taken they've taken my name off it. Or Bob hasn't put his own name. Right. <laughs> That's fair enough. Right. That sure. was his film. Yep. 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 Um, so Hugh, through throughout the nineties and uh, and and noughties, uh, were you were you you know getting consistent work, or were you you know was it an eclectic career? Yes, it uh, was. Um, I did I did quite a few corporates, but I never did them the way um, everybody else was doing them because in the eighties, with or with the sudden proliferation of cheap, inexpensive video gear. Um, you could people were able to do, and you know the no no lab laboratory processing mm -hmm. costs. People, young guys were popping up all over the place mm -hmm. and making corporates. And the way they made the corporates generally did not appeal to me at all. They were they were generally um, ten to fifteen minutes long, and they were like retail commercials, just hammer 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 mm -hmm. hammer 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 sure. with information and gimmicks and um, move, shot movements and things which were there for effect only and actually just conf confuse you and you come at the end of these things and think what was that all about mm. but I mm -hmm. was my background was really making documentaries mm -hmm. and you've got a rhythm and flow and everything changes and there are passages that are fast sure. and passages that are slow yeah. and so that's the way I made them as films as stories about the organisations mm. and I did a lot of them for the dairy board and I worked mm. for I did work for hundred um, the dairy boards companies overseas. I was shooting stock footage for them. Somebody in Russia would order foot special specific footage, and I'd sell it. I'd shoot it, and then I'd sell it to to somebody in Bolivia. Right, and they all knew I was doing that. Mm -hmm. right. But, um, so but I wasn't quite, charging a lot. Yeah. So you know, it that's worked being to everybody. Yeah, but it worked mm. to everybody's advantage. Mm. Mm. So yeah, and sometimes we're working with big stars from um, from Asian countries. Mm. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't know who they mm. are here. Mm. But, so um, you were um, you were effectively freelancing like most yeah. a lot of people do in the film industry. They, yeah. They're really just uh, uh, um, work from job to job and not never quite sure of where the next job will come from. Was yes. that kind of how you you? Uh, it yeah, was, was, it was, but um, when I first did the first job for the Dairy Board, that was at the end of 1985 it started, 
the budget. It was uh, it was to replace a film that John O'Shea made about fifteen years ago, called Cows, Computers, and Customers, which, despite the cunning alliteration, wouldn't have worked terribly well in French because it would have mm. been, mm. <laughs> mm. Les va- you know, les vaches, uh, le, les compétiteurs. A uh, les, les patrons, mm-hmm. which really would awkward, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. nice no, it, was, French, it, it was quite it was quite a good production. Um, but but um, never wanted to update it, so mm. put in a quote for one hundred ninety eight thousand and got it, mm. of mm. course. But that was a route, you know. It was really actually set up, but it didn't matter because it was. Uh, um, if I hadn't got it, it would have gone to somebody else anyway. Mm, 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 but mm. that and and that one made me a, a reasonably good profit. Then I made a couple of television TVCs mm-hmm. for um, mm-hmm. for various agencies. You haven't done TV documentaries. Yes, yeah. I've made a um, a one-hour documentary um, Tuesday documentary. I've got finally got a copy of it actually on DVD about uh, cancer research in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I did that for TV One. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, the Tuesday documentary, mm. and I'm really pleased to have a copy of that because it's interesting mm. to look at now and see where we were at in in mm. terms of cancer research sure. in, yeah. um, 25 years yep. ago. So, were you in in those instances where you're making documentaries? Are you producing them as well? No, I was director. I was contract right. director. Yeah, sure. And I did yeah. quite a bit of work for Top Shelf too. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it it, uh, it it will fast forward to to uh, the early 2010s and uh, and the gestation of the the project um, your your feature documentary about Sheila Natouche. Is that, yeah. is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Now. Um, now that's uh, we've had very good success with that as a rental title and a sales title at, yeah, here at Aro Video. Mm. It's had a high profile. I imagine it uh, it got bums on seats in theatres nationwide. So, um, congratulations uh, on the on the film, and and it's a very enjoyable one as well. Um, so, tell us about what made you want to make a feature um, about an 88-year-old lady um, and, uh, you know, at this, you know... Well, she... Um, she at this juncture. She was uh, my father's cousin, so her, my relationship to her is sort of first cousin once removed, and she was uh, very, very unusual, very, very talented, very creative, very, um, you know, very multi-faceted um, interests and... She knew, you know, astronomy. Um, she was a, a prolific writer and artist. She was um, a member of the Maritime Archaeological Association, um, and there was, there are several other. You know, they go on and on and on. She was a tramper and an explorer and all the rest mm. of these things. And I'd always wanted to make a film about her. And um, so at this stage in nineteen. 19- <laughs> was she, some, was she somebody she, you saw very often? Not not as often as I'd like to, but mm. yeah, but because she, she lived out in a Fero Bay, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, getting but you'd out see there. her at family Christmases or yeah, that we, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, we did, we did, yeah. we did keep in touch with her, and and my kids really loved her. Everybody liked her. Everybody mm. loved Sheila. Yeah, she just um, has. As John Barnett sent to me in a very enthusiastic email the day after he'd seen it, he said that 
So she looks fantastic. She just lights up the screen, and that's true. Mm. There are sequences when that. Mm. Well, um, she is a, you know, a really interesting individual, and that's why I wanted to make a story about her. Apart, apart from the fact she she was a Stuart Islander, mm. and well, that's one side of my father's family mm. were uh, from the Orkney Islands, and they came to Stuart Island in the eighteen forties. Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, conforms to, a, I guess, a genre, you know, of... of uh, yeah, well, um, Gardening with Soul set the... Uh, the was the, the template. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but there's been a lot of uh, others in that genre that, that are kind of uh, um, biographies, um, but also um, character studies of um, extraordinary people. Yes. You know. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think that there is um, it's been proven that there's an appetite there is, for local yeah. audiences uh, yeah. to to see uh, to see uh, portraits of those people. Yeah, have you quite... seen Celia? I haven't seen Celia. It's but brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Co- Kobe is another one that springs to mind. Which one? The, the Kobe Boshard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, well. yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, t- tell me about um, you know was it was it difficult to make or, or is it once the film is made that it becomes more challenging or what were the challenges around the, the challenges film? were hidden the problem we I started off on the wrong foot with using somebody who'd been working with me because he knew how to use Final Cut Pro 10 which everybody hated and uh, he had taught himself to use it but he never logged anything, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, in we uh, edited sequences together that I hope we could use them in their entirety, or or just change them slightly to go into the body of the film once we got to that stage. And we we're in a hurry because um, we we're editing right up to the end of January, twenty fourteen, and her ninetieth birthday was on February the fourteenth. Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. and we wanted to have it ready. She had invited friends from all over the country, and we had to have two screenings and two birthday parties because it filled up Time Cinema and everybody else, and um, and and uh, the, the rest of the surrounds there. So that we had to run it twice. Um, but then when I got to, oh, I came in to take get Peter Metcalf Poe to take over. He couldn't work it. He couldn't find anything because it was just right. all numbers. Okay. Now, Graham could find the stuff, but mm-hmm. you know. And finally, we spent months fi- trying to find somebody who would actually know and appre- and um, and be uh, how to use Final Cut Pro 10, the later versions that came out, where all the bugs had been hit. Mm-hmm. taken out it's a completely different product now from the first version and mm-hmm. um, I'm mm-hmm. I can't learn I've never learned these things because I've never had the time to learn mm-hmm. I'd like to but mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I prefer I work like um hacker like Mike Horton sure I, I work with a, a button pusher right because yeah. I know exactly where I want to come yeah, indeed all right so there were kind of yeah um but so what yeah so what happened was issues very mm. very much so and we're spending three three grand a week and we spent nine grand and achieved nothing. Mm. Finally, we got Abby King Jones, who was keen to do it and had the right. Was the skills. film already shot by the stage? Yes, yeah, um, it's, it's all yes, post production yes, um, yeah. woes. Yes, mm. yes, yeah. And Abby um, 
was using Final Cut Pro 7, which was not compatible with 10. Oh, Apple said that. But, of course, people like Graham, he's a, he's a technician. He's not a filmmaker. He's got no sense of rhythm. In fact, he's a cane toad. Um, they're not known for their sense of rhythm. Um, it was... Uh, how shall I put it? It was... Oh, it had to be migrated back to Final Cut Pro 7. And Graham actually found a program online that would do it. And we got all of this done. So this spent time, it just, on it went. Mm -hmm. And then Abby, she went through everything. She was very thorough, so that was weeks of work. And then working with Final Cut Pro 7 um, was dreadfully slow compared with 10 because everything had to be rendered. On Final Cut 10, um, what you, you know, you want a, a, a dissolve or a special effect or something, you just... It's it's there, it's instantaneous. And here it was, we do something fairly complex and then you wait for five minutes as this thin right. blue line crept. Okay. So how did you overcome this issue? I we mean, just did, didn't, we just went on and on and on. We right. spent over 50 grand on editing. Right, because of the time the, it took. It was Yeah, it was the time you, you, largely. Okay, yeah. But it was also the precedent set by Graham that he said he could use Final Cut Pro 10. And mm. he could, but... Nobody else could work mm. his, his stuff mm. out. Sure. And so, I wasn't going to use them to make them, mm -hmm. to be the final editor. Mm. You said that Gardening with Soul kind of set the template or was, you know, the the, the precedent. So was was that, uh, did that give you ideas that you could have a, a theatrical uh, feature film that, that could, um, you know, be exhibited theatrically and attract an audience because Jess had done that with her film. Yeah, that's right. And they, there was a there was a call for more women to get involved in directing and being on the screen and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, she was a prime example. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked for Sister Leola, Loyola, who was friends with Sheila. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The the only difference is that we went a few steps further because her this. The uh, Guardian with Soul has effectively really only got one location, but it's a good film, you know. Mm. You know. Mm. Mm. Um, whereas um, No Ordinary Sheila goes all over the place. Mm. Sure. Were you pleased with the fact that that uh, people came to see the film? And, uh, uh, did, well, did that, people um... kept. I've never experienced anything like it since mm -hmm. This Is New Zealand. It was even more than This Is New Zealand. I mean, people came out of This Is New Zealand weeping, you know, tears of bloody patriotism and pride and the rest of it. But here, people would come out and they would stop and thank us for making the movie. Mm. Extraordinary. And yep. then the reactions were universally fantastic. We had full houses. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Rialto ripped us off. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yes. You're, you're, um, so th they uh, they distributed... Um, they did cinematic distribution. Right. And, and mm -hmm. some of the... Um, uh, some of the DVD distribution, but I, you right. know, I was selling it as well. Right. Was there, was there um, any funding whatsoever for the film? Um, we got a $5,000 development loan... And at this stage, uh, what was happening at the Film Commission? Um, there was a, a Canadian guy, can't remember his name, Sean Carley, that's what his name was. And he was really enthusiastic about the project. He said, you know, um, he said, you know, this, he said to me and Christine Dan, my producer, she, she hadn't produced anything. Well, she produced the, 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 the one about the family farming history. 
um, but that was early days. Um, we, uh, where am I? Where am I? What the hell? Um, oh yes, uh, Sean Cowley said, yeah, this is, a, this is a great idea, terrific idea, terrific woman. Like, there's the kind of film I really like to make. Um, they thought, oh, that's good, yeah. And he said, oh, I'd just like to make a suggestion. And we said, yeah, what? And he said, get another director and another producer. This is my right. relative that he's talking about. Mm, sure. Doesn't know a bloody thing about anything. Mm. And um, he went back to Canada shortly after that. Right. And then the second time round, uh, we were, when we were finished and the film was actually mixed and Bill was really pleased with it and said, we're going to put this film in every every venue that the film festival goes to. And um, I took the, all this information along and we put in an application for post-production sound, which mm -hmm. we desperately needed. Mm -hmm. And um, it went to Tracy Brown and she rang me back and said, oh, you've got it, that's fine, yeah, I'll get back to you within six weeks. She's all bubbling all over. Six weeks came and went and um, seven weeks came and went, so I rang her up and she said, ah... Oh, Oh, um, no, I'm sorry, Hugh. Um, you, you didn't get anything. And I said, why not? And he, he said, you've had your money. And I said, what, ten, five grand as, as a development loan? Mm -hmm. Yes, so I thought, well, fuck this. Mm -hmm. So I rang up Maladin, mm -hmm. and who is the, um, you know, he's been there forever, mm -hmm. and he's been the two IC, and he's the head of mm -hmm. finance, and we got the money the next day. Right, but if I hadn't known Ladin, then and and the you know I didn't know many other people because there were a lot of them were new, mm. and and mm. Uh, mm. Dave was on the point of leaving, so there was no mm. point going and discussing mm. it with him. He'd just finished. So does that mean the rest of it was self-financed? Yes, it was. A lot yeah. of it was. It was um, people were sending us in a hundred dollars or or more, mm. and. Um, did you yeah. have a crowdfunding thing, or do you went well, no, we had the web, just a website with a, yeah. with um, seven hundred sure. at least people right. subscribing to well, it. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I ended up I ended up owing Christine something like at one stage of about seventy grand. Right, right. So there was no uh, given that there'd been successful theatrical, um, no, uh, you know, exhibitions of, of documentaries like Gardening with Soul that it was proven there was an appetite for these kinds of films. They yeah. weren't prepared to invest more money up front, uh, you, you know, to, yeah, you well, know, to tell a story of a, of an important New Zealander. It was well, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know what the situation is like mm. now because you know there is a new CEO and I don't know anything about right. her. Hmm. Um, but what, Dave Gibson? No, no, not Dave. No, I'm talking oh. about now. Um, but yeah, no. What, new CEO of what? Of the film commission? Of the yeah, film commission. Yeah, there's. Um, Is there a new CEO of the film commission that's not Dave Gibson? Yeah, Dave's gone. I didn't know that. Did right. you? Oh, no, no, no. no. He's oh. he'd done his four years. Okay, right. And oh, he's right. going shot through to. Sure. Okay. Well, pardon my ignorance. Um, well, you're not in the thick of it, but um, no. you are in the thick of it in yeah. every other way. Yes, <laughs> I am. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, well, that's bittersweet. I'm sorry yeah, to well, hear there's a kind of a yeah. I know. You know we, we, I, we, I thought there was this enormously well, successful was local documentary. Successful everywhere. What about TVNZ? Are they going to show it and no, give you no, lots of money? It ran on Rialto Television, Rialto Channel. Right. And I okay. don't know what we'll get out of that because when Kelly Kelly Rogers 
Jimmy Rogers, everybody, I think, um, was going through the various clauses. He was rattling through it. And uh, we've been done with five media interviews before this. We're really tired. And we had another a busy afternoon. And he was, he was trying to... He, he was talking to me, and uh, what his offside of Kevin Gordon was talking to Christine, and and bloody Kelly was going, and then we get to television, blah blah blah, blah and we go, and it's then it was fifty fifty percent of that standard, that standard, mm-hmm. and they'll get back and and talk to um, Lindsay uh, Shelton mm-hmm. about this, and he said that's bullshit. It's mm-hmm. when, once it gets to television, it should have been sixty forty or. 80-20, not 50-50. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I I think we'll be very lucky with anything we get because right. what happened when it, after that, what happened on that general release was um, it carried on exactly the same. There were repeat screenings in, in the provinces. We went and did Q&A sessions all over the country mm-hmm. and it was just, it was, everybody was just raving about it. So that was mm-hmm. all, all, all very satisfying. But then, um, then when the retar- final returns came in, there was something like um, I know what I was talking to Mark Galloway, old friend and colleague, uh, distributor, and now running his he's running the mm-hmm. Kerry Kerry. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, he's got his own boutique cinema. cinema yeah, yeah. Um, and um, he said that if you get over three hundred k in gross in the uh, box office and general release you should get about 70 or 80k out of that we got 12k right and mm-hmm. they did it by smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. they actually threw all of the there's there's a column that says film hire and it says 85,000 that's the film hire that's the original figure figure they take out of that 300k right film hire and then they throw all their expenses at that mm-hmm. that they kept back from the money that they got from the film commission which they did they got 34,000 from them Mm. And they took it down, and then when Kelly got it down to to twenty five thousand, he said, "Oh, that'll do. Mm. Cut it in half, 50, twelve 50. grand each." Mm. Sure. Oh dear. But we did get more, and I did get about ten grand from sales from the, of the DVDs through the website. Sure. Oh well, yeah. That's uh, well, we we um, we sold a few too. Uh, I, we haven't really talked much about Sheila herself, but I just wanted to ask. Um, she. I thought when I was researching it that she might have, because she, she passed away in 2017, and I thought she might have actually died before the film was released, but that wasn't so, no. was it? No, it Just, wasn't. She'd had heart, congestive heart failure for years, and in fact I think the reason why she had this was because in 2005 when her husband Gilbert, who'd had got Alzheimer's and, and uh, um you know the Parkinson's and everything, and he was in a home. He died. She was the night of the day he died. She was preparing to have a major heart surgery for calcified heart valve, and she got out. She she got out of bed and it said she she says it in the film, and she went home and you know planned to come back and have the operation later and said arranged for the made arrangements the fuse uh, funeral quote as one needs to do under these circumstances and then she went back and she had the operation they gave her a pig valve now from 2005 to 2014 is quite a long time for an organic valve like that mm-hmm. and so it wasn't working properly and i suspect i'm you know i'm behind, i'm just hypothesizing because i'm not i'm 
I'm not a, a, a cardiologist, but I know a wee bit about these things. And I really think that what happened was that valve was giving up completely. Mm. And, um, you know, she'd get really, really breathless, but she always still continued enjoying everything she did. Mm. Because if she didn't enjoy it, she wouldn't bother. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very good. All right. Well, um, yeah, so I just, yeah, finally, she, 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 she was at the premiere of the film. Yeah, and, that was, uh, so that would have been no. She was uh, actually at the second screening. The premiere was right. at the uh, to Papa and Soutings Theatre, and yeah. it would have been very awkward getting in there. And we right. couldn't get hold of anybody who'd mm. sponsor a, an oxygen bottle and a nurse. But what happened was, after we came back from Auckland, um, we went straight to the um, Paramount, and it was full. And Sheila was there, and some of there was the nurse and the oxygen bottle. Right. So she got to experience it with the full audience and full audience response, hmm. which yeah. makes a hell of a lot of difference. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, and uh, passed away ten days later. No, no, two days. Two days. Oh. Yeah, we were on. We were going on stage at the Theatre Royal in Christchurch, and somebody came running up and told us that they just had a call from Wellington and Sheila had died that afternoon. Right, right. She right. was hanging on to see it because yeah, yeah. The trouble was. Um, Although we'd shown her sequences and got it down from Te Hopai home where she was living, um, she was getting weaker and weaker all the time. Yeah. And she just really said, yeah. when's, when's the premiere, when's the premiere? Oh, yeah. so. so despite the troubles that you had with the editing and that protracted process, yeah. you know, you managed to get her to the to see the film, the finished yes, film. Yeah. So you, you got it there in time. Yeah. 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 Lovely to have you on uh, the podcast, Hugh. Thank you for, for uh, uh, the walk a, down memory lane. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Um, you'll have to do some heavy editing here, I should have Oh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Now, finally, I just, I'm going back to From Beyond the Grave, uh, oh, right. the, the, uh, the Amicus Horror Anthology. I just wanted to, uh, uh, I was going to, uh, give you your adopt a movie certificate uh, because I haven't done that yet. So uh, that's yours to say. Thank you very much, and um, uh, it is a uh, a welcome addition to the Aravidia Library. So um, yeah, well, I think there'll be um, people who 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 will never have seen that film, and I don't yep. I don't remember. It's already rented, but I I told the person, can you please make sure it's back by uh, by Tuesday? All right for the interview. So where did you get this copy from? Uh, that's from the US, yeah. Oh, so it's the NPC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that doesn't matter because all our machines will play NTSC. Yeah, we don't talk much about NTSC these days. We no. talk about region code issues. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, but uh, but um, anyway, um, From Beyond the Grave is, is, is multi-region. Anyway, we should leave it there. Thank you so much again for coming up. and um, It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Great. Thanks, Hugh. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Before I go, I'd like to say a special thanks to those uh, who responded to our Survival Guide newsletter and those of you that bought DVDs from our sale and have become friends through our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Aravideo. 
uh, on Patreon, you can become a friend uh, from as little as US $1 per month. And uh, you can receive a complimentary film rental once or twice a year or once or twice a month, depending on the various options. And Patreon support also offers great value for those more actively involved in our rental library services. And don't forget, you can also support us by adopting a movie for yourself or someone you know. And you can even adopt a movie through Patreon as well on a month-by-month basis. Finally, I invite you to register your feedback about what you've heard on Facebook or SoundCloud in particular. And you can subscribe to this podcast for automatic updates through your preferred podcast app. Until next time, kakite anō. Thank you.